chapter 3. We've said for many weeks that freedom is very hard for humanity to handle. And we're coming back this week to our series on Galatians to think about the idea of what does it mean to be free? Free from the tyranny of the law. Free to trust in Christ. And so now we'll read together Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 23 and going down to chapter 4, verse 7. If you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Galatians 3, 23 through 4, 7. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is No male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. You drive by and you can't help but notice it. It's this beautiful, massive, ornate, amazing house. It's eerily familiar to you, yet you've never noticed it before because it's the kind of house you've always wanted to live in. There's a sign in the yard that says, open house, big black letters. And underneath it, it says, one hour only. You look at the clock and see that it's the hour, and so you pull a U-turn. And you park your car, and you walk up to the front of this house, and you notice there are people walking along the sidewalks, and you improve your gait a bit to beat them through the gate. And as you walk through this amazing garden of azaleas and tulips and whatever else, lady, I don't know, what's in a garden? All these other beautiful flowers that are in a garden. You walk up to this huge, thick front door, 
which is open for you, and you walk into this house, and there you are in the entryway. And you see immediately when you walk in, on your left is a picture of the family that lives in this house. And you walk into this house, and there are rooms upon rooms and corridors and hallways of plaques and tapestries and books and pictures. It's like an adult children's museum, but more interesting, you begin to walk through this house and you begin to read about this family that lives there. And as you go through the doors and you go through the hallways and you pass the thresholds, about the fifth room you get to, somebody comes out and they're a tour guide and they greet you and they welcome you and say, hey, welcome to this house. And they begin to show you by hand each and every one of the plaques and tapestries and pictures and images of this family who lives in this house. And the tour guide, after every one of these plaques, begins to show you, look what they did back in this date. Look what they have now. And they begin to look at you and say, don't you wish you had that? Can you do that? Look what this family does. How about that? And you kind of become confused as you're in this house that you walked in on your own volition. And this wonderful, beautiful, immaculate, ornate house, as you go deeper and deeper into the house, you realize this tour guide is actually trying to help you see that you're not like the family that lives there. Strange. The tour guide leaves, and you try to make an early exit, so you turn around and open the door you came in on, only it leads you deeper into the house. You go for the window, but all the windows in that room are painted shut. You follow the only doorways you can that lead you somewhere else, and it takes you down. And this house, which was open for us, one hour only, this beautiful, ornate, amazing house that you've always wanted to live in becomes not a house of wonder and amazement. It becomes a house of bondage. I can't get out of this house. And then you see, dancing along the wall, the shadow of someone coming down the stairway to you. And with each passing step, you begin to get more nervous because you don't want to be with anybody right now. You want to get out. And you see the flicker of the candle as the person carrying this candle comes closer to you. And you see a hand reach out to you and you take that hand and they slowly, very tenderly lead you up the stairway into the light. And there, on the first floor of the house, you see the rays of the sun come through the window and lighten the face of the one who is the father of that house. And he takes you in his arms and he embraces you with a hug that's deeper than any love you've ever felt. And he takes his finger and he raises your chin and he looks at you and he says, my child, I love you. My child, I love you. He says, my child, I love you. He said, no, 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 I already have a family. I already have a family. No, child, your earthly family marks your face. But my family marks your heart. And then he pulls out a key out of his pocket. Does anybody have an extra key laying around? He pulls out a key. And he hands you the key, and he says, this key is the key to my house. Everything in this house 
is yours. Every event that you look at, that you once began to think that you didn't measure up, everything that you read about these people in this house is now true of you. Everything that I own is now yours. And this key is a key to my room, it's a key to my chambers, it's a key to my presence whenever you need it. Well, I have an earthly family. No, 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 I'm not telling you to get rid of your earthly family. They mark your face, but my family marks your heart. All that I have is yours. You have that key in your pocket somewhere? I want you to take it and raise it up for me. Let me see it. Listen, this story is just a story, but it's a story that you repeat to yourself a thousand times. Because when you go into the house, as it were, the law, and you have a tour guide that welcomes you through the law. His name is Moses. And you get offered a key to the house. Many of us don't ever take that key because we are so set on trying to match the efforts, the achievements, all of the successes of that family. And many of you don't need to tell yourself this because you create a law for yourself. And you've had this law since you were very, very little. I know this is true of you because it's deeply true of me. That from a very young age, you've always wondered, how will I measure up? Will my mother and daddy be, approve of me? Will I make the grade when I'm in school? Will I graduate? Will I get into that college? Will I land that internship? Will I get that job? Will I make that much money? Will I be able to live in that house? Will my wife be happy? Will I ever get married? Will we ever have children? Will I have enough money for retirement? What will, I, what will my retirement look like? Will it look like that? Friends, you do not need the Old Testament law to create a law for your hearts. That's what Romans 1 and 2 tells us, doesn't it? That by nature you know the law in your heart because you've created one. And though you may not have read the Old Testament law in a very, very long time, and if you've never read it, that's okay. You have a law that is arguably as long or longer in your heart by which you judge your worthiness. The reason we know this in Owasso, Oklahoma, and in Tulsa, and the area, is because we are fiercely lonely people. Did you know that they've done studies in recent days out of Utah that tell us that loneliness, which is not being alone, loneliness clinically defined is the perception, it's the perception of The number of friends that we actually have and the number of friends that we really want to have not being the same. It is the subjective experience of being isolated. One book that recently came out, The Virus of the Modern Age, hashtag loneliness says this, so connected yet desperately we are alone in our hearts drowning in an ocean of infinite possibilities and becoming accustomed to a new way of being alone together in a technological cocoon that covers up our real pain and shame and guilt. Our true essence is hidden behind facades that we show the world from the fear of being judged and criticized and rejected. And this is what brings us out of a natural state of healthy balance, this book argues. It is the root cause of disease, this book argues, and it is what creates segregational phenomena experienced worldwide. Do you know that loneliness 
studies have shown, has the same detrimental health effects as if you were to smoke 15 cigarettes a day. And all of our friends and neighbors, they are exhausted, they are lonely, and they are distracted. I don't need to tell you about the Old Testament law. You've already created one for your heart. But here's the question for you. Are you a slave of the house or are you a son of the king? Are you a slave of the house or are you a son of the king? When the father offers you this key and you gladly take it, Paul is trying to argue in the book of Galatians, Christ is the key. You have received Christ. You don't need anything else. This house that once initially looked amazing to you, didn't it? It was eerily familiar, yet you had never noticed it before. You were drawn to it. Like this house, when you know that you have the key to the Father's estate, that you are an heir, you're not intimidated by what's on the walls of this house anymore, are you? So you can read the tapestries, and you can read, see the book covers, and you can read the plaques about all the great things this family has done, and you can say, that was what was done by my father. He did that. That was what was done by the Holy Spirit, by Jesus. Particular to the Old Testament law, Paul says that everything that the law required, Jesus did. And so you find yourself in the Old Testament law in a very practical way. Please hear me. You find yourself drawn into that house and you want to read deeper and deeper into it because with every passing threshold you walk, you are exploring and finding out more things that are true of your heavenly father. The law ceases to become bondage for you and it starts to become freedom because you realize that all of these things have been perfectly accomplished by Jesus. Are you a slave of the house or are you a son of the king? This text begs us to ask that question. And with the few moments we have together, I'm just going to give us as many things to know for you to answer that question as I possibly can in the time we've got. Are you ready? Are you a slave of the house or are you a son of the king? First, verse 23 The Old Testament law is a guard against sin, but it is not a liberator from sin. Look what verse 23 says. Paul argues before these churches of Galatia. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. The Greek word for held prisoner or locked up is the image of being protected by military guards. And let me ask you a question. Do military guards give you more freedom Or do they give you less freedom? They give you less freedom, don't they, kids? They guard you. They protect you. We are treated as prisoners by the law, or worse. Listen, when you walk into the Old Testament law, so many people do this. So many people become Christians Many, many Christians will have an experience where they walk an aisle, they sign a card, and they say, on this date, I became a Christian. But very soon thereafter, what do they do? They open the Bible, and they look at the law, and they begin to take the Old Testament law, and they begin to say, now, can I do that? 
and they begin to measure their lives based upon the Ten Commandments, and they begin to believe that if they keep those Ten Commandments, they practice the Sabbath perfectly, if they do not murder in their heart, if they do not lust after another woman or another man, they can keep these things perfectly. Then somehow God's favor improves upon them, that he looks at them in a different way. He smiles upon them because they've, but no, no, no. That is another form of bondage, don't you see? It's a bondage of your sanctification. It's not until you see that the Father has given you the key, that he has accomplished everything for you through his son Jesus, that you can begin to read the Old Testament as we should and find that it is not imprisoning, it's freeing. Because then we begin to want to follow the law because we begin to reflect more and more and more of our family name, the name of our heart, Christian. You do not follow the Old Testament law to get God to love you more. You follow the Old Testament law because he has shown his love and shed it abroad in your heart and he's given you the key to his very presence, something that nobody had in the Old Testament except the high priests. And you can come to him. I don't know if that lands on you well. I wish I was a better orator to help you understand that. But the king of the universe, the one who flung the stars into space, the one who knows everything, knows you if he's opened your heart to believe. And that key that you have is the key as a symbol to have access to God himself. The law was set up as a guard for us until the time of faith. But do not let your religious practices fall back into a kind of law-keeping. One philosopher said that religious beliefs and practices may mutate into a kind of self-serving substitute for the service of God. People start to use their religion to get rich or get happy or to feel good about themselves. They use it to build a power base or simply to secure and enrich a comfortable middle-class life. Why would you want to build or secure a comfortable middle-class life through keeping the law when you have the key to a house with infinite wealth? The law is a guard against sin, verse 23. Secondly, the law is a tutor for your heart. Look at verse 24. We'll do as many of these as we have time for. So then the law was our guardian. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Paul uses the Greek term pedagogos. It's the Greek term for a pedagogue, a teacher, right? It's a tutor. In the ancient Greek civilization, parents of wealthy families would often hire tutors. They would hire pedagogoi to help raise and keep their children. It's kind of like an au pair or a nanny, but with more responsibility today. It's that they would educate their children too. And Paul draws the analogy saying that the law is kind of like a pedagogue. It is someone who walks you through your schooling, who educates you, which shows us that the law is meant not just to be something that keeps us in bondage until we have faith in Jesus, but it's also meant to educate you. It's also meant to instruct your heart. It's also meant to show you how you are to live, but not in order to get God's love, but because you have his love. You then walk and run through those corridors of that house in joy because you're finding out more and more of your Father's love for you. Andrew Jukes puts it this way. He says, Satan would love to prove ourselves holy by the law 
which God gave to prove us to be sinners. Satan twists the law that we use as a measuring stick to determine whether or not we're really holy. And the Father says, listen, there's only one that's kept that law perfectly, and his name is Jesus Christ. And I, together with the Holy Spirit, have existed eternally in perfect fellowship with him. We know what love is because we've experienced it for all eternity. And out of the overflow of our love, we created a world to share that love. But Adam fell in sin. And with him, all of humanity fell as well. But we didn't just stay in our holy huddle. We moved out because we sent, we broke fellowship of the Holy Trinity. We sent our one and only begotten Son. And the Father sent Christ to live a perfect life for you and die the death that you deserved so that the Father one day could wrap you in his arms with a love deeper than any love you've ever felt and raise your chin and smile upon your face and hand you the key and say, would you take it? Everything I have is yours. When I look at you, I no longer see you as somebody coming to an open house, a stranger. I see you as my son or my daughter, an heir of all that I have is now given to you. Friends, the law is a guard for us. The law is a tutor for us. And thirdly, the law points us to Christ. Verse 24, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Listen, the law shows us that salvation can only be done by grace because have you ever tried to keep the law? Good luck. All of us know by experience we can't keep the law. I mean, not to mention the own law that you create in your own heart about how you measure up or don't measure up. You're killing yourself over it. Listen, some of you mothers just, you beat yourself up week after week thinking that you're not a good mother. Your kids deserve a better mother. That your father, dads, that like you want to be the dad that you aren't. And you continue to beat yourself up. Listen, God called you to be the father and the mother of that child because you're the perfect father and mother of that child he gave you. Nobody could be a better parent than you can be to your child. And you need to hear the smiling gaze of your father saying, I know it's hard, but lift up your chin. Those of you who long to be married but aren't yet married, God knows that he has you exactly where he has you because it's exactly what he wants you to do right now in your life. He wants you to wait on him and trust in him. He's a good father. He is not a mean, pernicious, angry father. Many of us, when we read the very last chapters, this is the fourth thing that we see, that we have a father in heaven who is good. Notice what it says. It says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Your earthly father's name marks your face, but this father marks your heart. And you can cry out to him. Because you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. And if you are a son, then an heir through God. We know that God is a good father. Why? Because at the appointed time, God sent his own son to be incarnate in the flesh, to be born of a woman. Just at the time when the roads of the Romans were the infrastructure of the ancient world was built in such a way that communication can happen around the turn of the birth of Jesus, 
God said this is the time when Jesus is to be born, to Mary. And he's to be born a Jew under the law to keep it perfectly so that all of us who are under the law because of our sin might be redeemed out from under it because we have a perfect law keeper who represents us. Just like our government represents us in Washington. Although please don't carry that illustration too far. So Jesus represents us before the Father. He does it perfectly. And just like you have a hard time sometimes projecting this whole idea of representation because we grew up as modern Americans with a government that sometimes gets it right and sometimes doesn't, whatever you may think. So also we project our understanding of our Father onto God the Father. Michael Foucault is a French philosopher who died in 1983 and when he was a young man, he had an amazing mind but he could not get past this idea in Christianity that God is a father. Because his father was a surgeon in France and a very good one. In fact, as a young child, Michael Foucault um, demonstrated um, some immaturity and his father wanted to help him mature as a young man and so he told his son to meet him at the hospital one day, and so the son met him at the hospital, and he said, now I want you to scrub in. You're going to go into surgery with me. No, dad, I don't want to go to surgery with you. No, I want you to go to oh, I'm deathly afraid of blood. No, son, you need to go into surgery with me. And he made his son, Michael Foucault, stand before the operating table as senior senior, as Foucault senior, the surgeon, amputated a limb in front of his son to toughen him up. And I don't know... There are any doctors in the house who do surgery like that, but please don't ever bring your child into the OR to try to prove that you have power. It dramatically affected Foucault's life for the rest of his life, that one experience. And some of you have fathers who are abusive. Some of you have fathers who are abusive in the worst way that I can't talk about publicly, lest we be so distracted by it. Some of us had fathers who were not even there, who worked a lot. Some of us had fathers who were overbearing, helicopter dads. We just wanted to get out of the house. We couldn't wait to graduate from high school. The image that the Father in heaven wants you to project is not the image of your Father onto God. It's actually God the Father onto the Father that you always long to have. And that if you're a father today, you should long to become. We sometimes make the misstep of projecting our image of the Father onto God the Father, but it should actually be the reverse. And here's a good Father, a loving Father, a caring Father who has given you a key to everything. He has adopted you as his own child. The law is a guard, the law is a tutor, the law points us to Christ. And we find that we have a Father in heaven through the work of Jesus who accepts us just as he accepts his own son. J.I. Packer said, if you want to judge how well somebody understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child, having God as his father. If this thought does not prompt and comfort or doesn't control his worship and his prayers and his whole life's outlook, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. You have a Father in heaven who loves you, and so therefore you can go to him and you can say, O oh, Father in heaven. You can speak directly to him. Jonathan Edwards says, In all your course, in all your walk with God, follow Christ as a little 
poor, helpless child taking hold of Christ's hand, keeping your eye on the mark of the wounds of his hands and side. From, from these wounds came the blood that cleanses you from sin and hides your nakedness under the skirt of his white, shining robes of righteousness. When the father looks at you, he doesn't say, get out of my house, you're not invited here. If you trust in Christ, the older brother, the one who finished the law, he embraces you with an embrace deeper than any love you've ever felt. And he raises your chin and he says to you, now tell me, you have a key. Are you a slave of the law? Or are you a son of the king? Which is it? Do you see your father's gaze upon you? Do you see the son's perfect life finished for you, made complete? And do you see that the only course, therefore, is to run to him, to receive his embrace, to accept his loving smile, and to grow in deeper and deeper repentance and trust in this fatherly care? And then leave that house and go dance through the streets and wear the clothing, which we didn't have a chance to talk about. You're clothed with Christ. You wear Christ's clothing. You imitate him. You live like him throughout the street. Why? Because you've been marked by a new name on your heart. Oh, friends, don't live like a slave. You have the acceptance of your heavenly father if you're a Christian. What better news could there be? Are you a slave of the house? Or are you a son of the king? Christ is the key. Do you have him? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can call you our Abba Father. That you will be a father to us and we shall be your sons and daughters, as Paul writes. That we can see what kind of love you have given to us, as John writes, that we should be called children of God because so we are. I pray, Lord, that you will help those in this room who have not received him, who have never believed on his name, that they would do so and you would give them the rights to become children of God. Thank you, Father, for Jesus who became like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of your kingdom to make propitiation for the sins of me and all of us who by grace are saved. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to now go outside the gate, to suffer, to live for, to imitate, to enjoy the good news that though our earthly family's name marks our face, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work for us and the completion of the law and our salvation marks our heart.